1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash acast. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash acast.
2: Before Shopify, were you wondering where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha ching.
3: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Spurs go back to the tried and trusted first half bad, second half good. Harry Kane's elite finishing a goal for Son and son of Jimmy, Brian Hill, impressing. They're just two points off, title chasing Newcastle. Meanwhile, it is so tight at the bottom... Five games for Nathan Jones, five defeats. Has he been there too long as Forest get their first away win of the season? Leeds and West Ham is fun. Leeds score two crackers. The point doesn't particularly help either, but we all enjoyed watching it. And poor Leon Bailey, absolutely distraught of missing a late chance at home to Wolves. Also today, the extraordinary story of violence, blackmail, deception and interfering soccer mums in the USMNT. Just what's happening at West Brom? Your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Paul McInnes, welcome. Hey, Max. Uh, Jonathan Faduba, hello. Good morning. And hello, Barry Glendening. Hi, Max. Uh, Joe says, uh, will Tottenham's bus parade clash with the late May bank holiday? Uh, Sam says, I've been a bit annoyed at how little coverage Crystal Palace have had, both on Football Weekly and the unnamed podcast show. We're always framed as the supporting cast to another team's good or poor form. This week, that lack of coverage is just fine with me. Um, I suppose they've done it again, Paul, haven't they? Like, bad first half, should have been behind, weren't, and then actually looked really quite good in the second half.
4: Yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see... It'd be interesting to know quite why they are as reactive as they are and quite what it would take to, for them to be proactive. And if they were proactive, how good they would be. Because there's a bit of me that wonders whether they could actually ever muster a 90-minute decent performance. But, you know, when they play like they did... Well, I say they. I mean, Brian. You'll probably talk about Brian Hill, and that is obviously quite an interesting introduction into the Spurs team, and he played very well. But I mean, it's just all about Harry Kane again, isn't it? I mean, two goals, uh, a, a really kind of powerful kind of drive inside from the left to get the third on the go, and then you know, winning the winning the long ball, flick, you know, elaborating a flick over the top to set Son in for the fourth. I mean, it's all about him, all about his completely rounded game, you know, this guy missed the crucial penalty for England less than a month ago and he's already over it. He scored 15 goals in 18 appearances, you know, that's going to put him on for over 30 goals in the Premier League, which has only been done, what, twice in the past decade. You know, if it wasn't for Haaland, we'd be going on about, you know, Harry Kane keeps getting better and better. Um, So, you know, they rely on him awfully, uh, but I think him and Conte are quite simpatico, so I think that might help.
3: Graeme Souness said, I think Spurs will finish in the top four simply because of him. You don't have to play well to win games because you have goals. He is Mr Goals. Barry, is, is he who, when if if you think of Mr Goals, is Harry Kane, who can't, can't, is he the player that comes up in your mind? I think maybe sort of more Michael Owen is Mr Goals
5: to me. I don't know. I've I've never really thought about who the personification <laughs> of Mr. Goals is? Is he? A, would he be like a character in a children's book or a? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Who do I see? I'm. I'm almost thinking Ian Rush. Uh, yeah. One, one for the dads there, but or Mr. Lineker even. I. I think yeah. Mr. Lineker probably would spring to mind before Harry Kane. But um yeah. Harry. Harry Kane is undeniably. Uh, goaltastic. He's he's now got 198 goals and 300 appearances and on Match of the Day um, Ian Wright could barely contain his delight that he'd beaten Alan Shearer (laughs) to (laughs) tally uh, over the same number of Premier League appearances although he did point out um, that Alan Shearer had missed the best part of three seasons with injury um, so that was nice of him. But He's incredibly important to Spurs, Um, we know that, it's it's hardly a revelation, and if he were to suffer an injury uh, that sidelined him for a couple of months, I think they'd be in big trouble, because heung son is is not having a good season, he got a goal last night, obviously, and was clearly delighted, but I think that's only his his fourth, is it? Uh, One hat-trick and that goal. And, and Spurs are not, well, are they having a good season or not? I don't know. As far as I can tell, they aren't. But their league position and the fact that they're still in the knockout, or they're in the knockout stages of the Champions League suggests otherwise. Um, but any time I see them, I'm kind of like, wow, they're pretty bad. Uh, but, yeah, they're, they're chugging along. I'm not so sure they will finish in the top four, but uh, obviously time will tell.
3: Jonathan, I presume Brian Hill. He feels to me like a footballer you've been watching. I was not going to say since he was a small boy because he still is, but you know a younger version of the tiny man that he is already. He is now.
2: Yeah, he, he played well. He's 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 a decent player. I think obviously he's taken some time to bed in into Spurs. And yesterday was arguably one of his well arguably his best games. To be honest, the way he got between the lines. I thought Crystal Palace. I know you're the listener doesn't want to speak about them, but I thought they were quite bad. Um, they started the first the half first fast first they were right and had a few chances but the sort of the, the Jordan-IU um, conundrum goes on um, starting in the Premier League and kind of not really doing much up front um, but I, I thought Palace just had a lot of players who underperformed. Mark he was really poor I thought um, really weak for one of the goals and just uncharacteristically kind of bad and they just seemed a bit weak Palace to be honest. I think Kane the praise I'd give him is that I, th- I thought the go- the the, uh, fir- the header he scored the first goal was really brave, and I don't know if uh, anyone who saw the Wolves Manchester United game, but a- Anthony had three similar chances where he kind of didn't quite fancy putting his head in in you know getting. There was a chance Kane could get hurt in that in that challenge, wasn't there? And he c- mm. kind of um, I thought that kind of summed him up in terms of that bravery to like commitment to really go for the ball where. There was two or three on 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 Saturday. Well, whenever it was, I can't even remember what day it is or what now in terms of Who New knows? Year's. But no one, no one knows that day. That was the day of the, uh, the <laughs> Wolves versus Manchester United game. Um, Anthony had three really like good chances like that where he didn't really want to put his, his head in the way. The the only thing I'd say about Kane is, is it time for Tottenham to sell him in a few months because his contract ends next summer. He's uh, contracted until twenty twenty four. Um, so it's almost kind of like now or never for Kane. And I'm just, I just wonder like there's maybe a story to play out there because if he doesn't leave this summer, then he can obviously leave for free next summer. I wonder if the club hierarchy would allow that. And so I wonder, I think there'll be some interesting conversations there going on because Kane obviously has still yet to win a trophy in his long career and might fancy doing that at some point. So um, yeah, I think there's a something to start playing out there in the next few months. I love the way that you totally decided that he would never, ever win it at Spurs there. You speak for, I think,
3: everyone (laughs) in the world, Jonathan, when you go, he's either got a choice, he's got got to stay at Spurs or go somewhere to win a trophy. It's fascinating, actually, what,
2: yeah, it's true, you're right. In fairness to Spurs, in fairness to Spurs, he might win a Champions League this season with them, so, you know, then we'd all have egg on our faces. I'd
3: be surprised.
5: I will confidently predict that is not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> what do you reckon Paul like what, what, what should he do yeah I mean I think I could, I could see a situation where he lifts the FA Cup at the end of the season Though, but um, I, I'm one of these people I, I kind of think there's a lot of glory to be had from staying at Spurs and being you know their all-time great player I mean it's a sheerer situation and uh, you know almost, almost exactly because you know if he stays at Spurs he'll you know, almost certainly break the Premier League scoring record he'll be remembered as the iconic player for his club but he will never have well, anything substantial, possibly, with that team. Um, and does anybody look look uh, a at Shearer for that? I'm not. I'm not sure if if he did move. But
5: but Shearer has a Premier League winners' medal.
4: Yeah. Okay. Okay. But not 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 after his you know his big move was to a club where he didn't win anything. Who would he move to if he did? I mean, he's not going to go to City now. Um. The the top. Six is in such flocks that beyond City, I'm not sure where your nailed-on candidate for kind of improvement is. So then you're looking.
3: Bayern Munich has talked about a lot. I think.
4: Do you think Bayern Bayern Munich? Uh, I mean, they've got status and he'll win some titles, but it's it's not quite like it's not as competitive a division, is it? And you know, I would have thought I would have thought he'd be you know if he didn't want to set Man City he'd want Real Madrid, and I don't really know. What the the Real Madrid situation is Benzema, you know him and Benzema aren't that dissimilar in age, the five years or something in it. It's not like a complete reboot post Benzema. Would they want him? It, it's a tricky one, it's I think. Good question. Yeah, I
3: mean he's done enough to work the lounges at Spurs when he gets
4: up. <laughs> he? Like, like
3: he can move on if he needs to. On the on Brian Hill before we move on from this game, um, uh, you know, lots of people saying he's just too small and too skinny, um, and apparently I've mentioned a twelve week physical sort of fitness plan that I was, do- I don't even remember mentioning it on the pod but but last night two personal trainers, one of whom trained the cast of The Only Way Essex have got in touch to sort of shred me into some sort of Adonis So maybe Brian Hill can join me to bulk up.
5: He, he looks like he should be in the cast of Happy Days or The Brady Bunch <laughs> yeah. you know I think it's the hair but he was very good last night, but it is difficult to see him ever being anything other than a kind of peripheral fringe player at Tottenham. Um, you know, we, we know he's not going to get in the side ahead of a fully fit Richarlison or Kulisowski, is he? No. And fringe so- is the right word for him. Well, I mean, yes. <laughs> that is.
3: So, uh, let's go to Ellen Road, Leeds 2, West Ham 2. Paul, not necessarily a brilliant result for, for either side, but brilliant game.
4: Uh, yeah it was a brilliant game and it, it, it was just uh, it, it, it swung uh, in momentum over the course of the game it swung over the, in momentum in course of minutes. It showed both teams at their sort of best and worst in that I think uh, there were patches in the second half where West Ham looked like all their you know big new boys have sort of clicked and there was real talent on display, real quality um, admittedly only for short periods, but it was there in moments and it looked quite exciting. But the, the confidence, the mentality is 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 not right. And they, they, they sort of dipped in about whether, you know, once they got to one, whether a third goal was the good idea or sitting on it was the good idea and they couldn't really decide. And that let leads back into the game, who I thought kind of, by and large, Willy Nonto aside, uh, sort of looked a bit short on quality, but couldn't doubt them for their application and determination or their belief. They, they had belief and they kept going, throughout the game I and mean, they've done it enough times this season that they knew the the possibility of of, of uh, something coming for them and they went 2-1 down um, to a great goal from Scamacca, scored a great goal from Rodrigo and then there were two chances in the last few minutes, Antonio on the stretch of a great cross which he probably should have reacted to quicker and, and, and scored from and then down the other end a really sweet... Um, I think it was a set, really sweet set piece move, I think, that ended up with a Rodrigo header that was incredibly saved by Fabianski. And, you know, so that game kind of gone either way. It was, it was harem scarem. There was probably as, as many uh, moments of uh, error as, as there were of, of, of delight, but still, that's your classic Barclays, I think.
3: Yeah. It's such a cliche, Jonathan, isn't it, about Leeds being entertaining.
4: But, like, when they get it right, both their goals were, like,
3: just really delightful to watch.
2: Yeah. And I, I really like um, Willie Nonso. I think he's going to be. A brilliant player so I think that's something to keep. I think Leeds fans are already really enjoying him Um there was something dare I say kind of Yeboah-esque about the goal like just the way he took it um on the, on the left foot just a bit of a throwback but he, he's a really exciting young prospect did really well at, um, at Zurich in Switzerland and uh, started his career at Inter and, and, and then Leeds have sort of picked him up and uh, you know a bit under the radar really and I think he's going to go on and be Potentially a key player for them, and, and he's quite suited to the Premier League in terms of like physique and 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 also technically. Um, yeah, the goals the goals were nice. Leeds are kind of in a, a bit of a strange situation, really, aren't they? They, I still feel there's a bit of dis, dissatisfaction from the fans um, around sort of managerial situation, um, the ownership situation as well. It seems as though. Are the people upstairs sort of committed to the club or are they maybe looking to move on? I know there's that whole kind of 49ers thing, isn't there, in, in the background. And um, it just seems like there's lead times are a little bit un, uncertain about where, where they're going. Still got that maybe post-Bielsa post hangover. Um, I think Klitsch, obviously, the, the the scenes at the end when he kind of uh, got his send-off, part of that, I felt, was maybe kind of the tears for that Bielsa era, really, because he, he kind of symbolised a lot of it, didn't he? Um but yeah, you know, they played OK in stretches, but but Jesse March, it doesn't seem as though the fans are totally convinced by him yet. And performances like from one week to the next are kind of a little bit inconsistent. Yeah, you mentioned
3: Click, actually. Danny says, please mention his farewell at Elland Road. Lynchpin of the Bielsa side. Absolute steal at one and a half million six years ago. 157 games for Bielsa, uh, 92 consecutive games. Uh, Mr. 93rd with a hangover from promotion, (laughs) Um, uh, spray painted a full wall outside Ellen Road um, and uh, the fuck off Bob tweet. I don't know if you remember that, Barry, um, where someone called Bob tweeted to say, stop giving the effing ball away, FFS and stupid free kicks around the box. It's kid stuff, FFS. Klitsch replied on Twitter, fuck off, Bob. Which, you know, <laughs> I'm sure so many players have wanted to do that. There are T-shirts for sale. You could buy mugs with it on. And, uh, yeah, great servant. I think Jonathan's right about that sort of Bielsa. I don't know. I feel there's a lot of Bielsa vibes around Jesse Marsh, though. It feels like the sort of the, if you're going to replace, if you're going to have a similar type of side, Marsh seems perfect for Leeds.
5: Yeah, I, I think if I was a Leeds fan, I'd... Be happy enough with Marsh. I think he's not that far away from turning them into a, a consistent side. They're they're certainly very entertaining. Uh, win or lose, they 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 generally put on a good show. Um, you know, if if you were to get rid of him, who who are you getting instead? I don't know, but he he isn't Marcelo Bielsa, but he he's. You know, he very much wears his heart in his sleeve. He is clearly very frustrated with his team's lack of consistency, their their inability to, to win that game last night. I think they were probably the better side. And, um, you know, that Rodrigo header goes in with the, the Fabianski save was unbelievable almost. It's a totally different story. But um, I'd be happy enough to have him as manager if I was a Leeds fan, um, I I like him. I I think he's good value. I mean, he is a bit American, isn't he? But um, you know, and and some of the 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 stuff he comes out, he's like a walking little book of Cam, even though he's anything but Cam.
4: Yeah, I I, I like him. Yeah, an instance of Jesse Marsh's fury last night because he's always so furious on the touchline. There was a there was a moment where the 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 linesman or whatever missed a. Mr. Throwing called the throwing wrong and, and, and gave it to West Ham when it should have been lead. And, and Marsh picked up the ball. And he was holding the ball, like, so furious, just, like, <laughs> squatting, <laughs> holding it up in front of his face. looked like he was trying to throttle the ball for about 30 seconds and then eventually just sort of puts it down and lets the play go on. It was like, all right, mate, hope you've worked out your issues.
3: What do you think will happen to West Ham, Jonathan? It was an impossible question to answer. I mean, in patches, they were... You know, as Paul said, the Scamacca finish was great. The penalty was a no-look penalty, completely ridiculous from Paquetar, but it it was a nice finish. And actually, I think good that the referee, even though he didn't sort of mean to play advantage and then give a penalty, it's nice that that is a thing. But the question was none of those things. It was, what's going to happen to West Ham?
2: I don't think they'll be relegated. So I probably see them in maybe sort of somewhere between 9th to 15th. It's a bit of a mishmash, isn't it? There's about 13 teams in the league this season, That I'm not sure it's a really a vintage-quality league this year in terms of, I don't know if it's maybe a little bit of fatigue or whatever, but a lot of the teams down the bottom don't seem to really be at the peak of maybe past years. I mean, there, there is a lot of calls for David Moyes to go, isn't there, from fans at the moment I've seen. The, the problem with Moyes is that they, they're, they're sort of buying more and more flair players, aren't they? The likes of Pakatar and... Um, You know, they've got Ben Rama there. They've got a lot of sort of nice technical players. And is Moyes the the, the man to kind of get them playing that free-flowing style? Not sure. The other issue they have is, you know, it's a bit like the Kane situation, isn't it? Declan Rice uh, pretty clearly making it obvious that he wants to be playing Champions League football as soon as possible um, during the World Cup. And I think fans, I'm not sure they really enjoyed that statement, to be honest. And, you know, he's he's, he's there kind of... um, Mark Noble type replacement isn't he in terms of that, that spiritual leader of the club and for him to sort of say that and, and pretty much throw his, throw his, um, his inten- well make his intentions clear it just probably adds to the discontent really at West Ham because I think he was the one that they could really look to and you know feel some confidence with um, so the season's probably going to p- peter out for them and I, I don't really know where exactly they're going to go but I, I don't think they'll go down because he doesn't know how to organise a defence which uh, quite a few of the teams down the bottom don't seem to know how to
4: Don't forget the Europa Conference League, though. The Europa Conference League, the (laughs) home of glory. That's, yeah.
5: Well, the trophy's a trophy. If they get it, it'll be amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yesterday was, I suppose, quite a traumatic day for West Ham because their co-chairman, David Gold, passed away after a short illness. So who knows what effect that will have on any decisions that need to be made in, in the coming weeks.
3: Yeah, uh, tributes were uh, made before the game. There were flowers on the seat that he would have taken. Uh, David Moyes says, I'm extremely sad to hear this news. On behalf of all the players and my staff at the training ground, I'd like to extend our deepest sympathies to David Gold's family at this very difficult time. Mr. Gold was a regular visitor to Rush Green, And always a source of great support and encouragement to myself and the players. It was clear that he had a genuine and sincere love for the club and was a true supporter at heart. He took a great interest in the people working behind the scenes and was always keen to help in any way he could. He will be greatly missed. Uh, That'll do for part one. Part two will begin at St. Mary's. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow,
1: furnishing it has never been easier.
3: Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Southampton nil, Nottingham Forest won. The side with the worst home record against the team with the worst away away record. Box office, uh, Forest won it. First away win, second away goal. Sam says, do we now have the answer to whether Hassan Hootl was any good? Finding it very difficult to write a new version of tough job for Nathan Jones, isn't it, Barry?
5: Yeah, um, well, I I, I mean, Philippe thinks Ralph Hassan Hootl is a great manager. I'm... I wasn't never convinced, I must confess. Uh but last night Southampton were pretty pathetic in this game. That's they had no shots on target. That's their sixth defeat in a row. Nathan Jones really needs a win. Like really needs a win. Because he's you know, he's he's done well at Luton, he's gone to Stoke. That hasn't worked out for him. I dunno if that was a Nathan Jones problem or a Stoke problem. But his record there was dreadful. He goes back to Luton, does brilliantly again. Now he's got to step up to the Premier League and couldn't really have got off to a worse start. It's an underwhelming appointment. I think Southampton fans weren't particularly thrilled by it. And they made their feelings abundantly clear at the end of the game last night. Uh, they They were booed off quite emphatically. And... I wondered: Is there a part of the Southampton hierarchy? I think they might have already made a mistake in in appointing a manager with no Premier League experience. I have no idea, but he desperately needs a win.
3: Southampton's next game is against Everton, Paul, which is hilariously big, isn't it?
4: To and to, and two couldn't think of teams on 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 worse form either. So it might actually work out that Saints do get a win. Um and. But I'm not sure that will change the complexion for things all that much. i mean, reading the the comments under the Guardian match report last night, which is always quite good when it's sort of teams who aren't right at the top of the Premier League, because you do get a lot of uh, h- uh, hard boiled fans posting there, and and there's just a there was just a widespread um, fatalism really that that yes Jones should never have been appointed, he's going to barely touch the sides, um, but this is this has been a moment, a long time coming and that there's a kind of a sense of gravity for any team that doesn't have, you know, billions behind them. And even when you do have the billions that can run out at any point, there's a sense of gravity that pertains on uh, all, but the kind of the the most elite of the elite clubs. And eventually you're spelling the Premier League will come to an end. And the fans were very much giving off, off that vibe. And you can't really see beyond, you know, James Ward-Prowse, you can't really see any any kind of leaders in that team who could make a positive difference for them to turn it around because, you know, their their transfer spending in the summer was just on callow players, you know, talented players but players with no experience and somebody like Che Adams is, you know, all right and, and probably could be more effective than he is but he's not the sort of person who looks like he can go on a half a dozen, you know, six goals in six game streets start turning things around. So where does it come from? Personally speaking, you know, I think I think you get rid of Jones now, and you try and go for Sean Dyche. I mean, they obviously didn't want Sean Dyche earlier because they wanted to play a progressive brand of football or whatever it was, or you know, something more systems based. But I think if you want to stay in the Premier League, there is an option there that is probably better than the one you've got. That's
5: quite a nuclear option, though, to to, to get rid of him. What, what's he had three, four games in charge?
4: Five,
3: lost five in a row. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean I think he, he reminds me, you know, he's a you know a Pepe Mel kind of or a Kike Sanchez Flores version too, you know. There the, there are some there are some managers who come in barely make an impression and then, you know, go again and you don't remember them 6 months later. And if and if the gamble works then everybody can move on. I mean, I think haven't Saints done it before that Mark Hughes season. Wasn't he quite a late drop in to kind of save them. So I kind of feel like uh, I don't I don't see it going any other way than than this than than down for Saints at the minute and, and it depends on how long term the, the thinking is at Southampton and I'm not sure it is that, that long term. Yeah. Do
3: you know what? I don't know what you think, Jonathan. I, I would feel so bad for Nathan Jones. I mean I'd get over it if I felt my life in a big way, but I think Paul might be onto something there. I think that might be a good idea. You could see Dyche getting anyone out of that. I mean, I think Everton could be thinking the same thing, you know?
2: The problem they have if they go for someone like Sean Dyche is that they, they've got new ownership, haven't they? And they've kind of come out and said they want to have this new model and kind of announced this brave new world that they're going to go, this route that they're going to go down. And um, I think they hired someone, I believe, from Brentford. I might be wrong on that, but, um, you know, maybe looking towards that kind of recruitment style. Um, and I think Nathan Jones was going to be the man to kind of lead that and, and maybe start to bring in his own players and, and, and work under that model they've gone for a lot of you know youth recruitment in, in in the summer you know the likes of Idozi for example from Manchester City who's sort of had a lot of game time and if you do that and then you sort of get rid of it and then you go for dust or Sean Dyche it's almost like would you then get rid of Sean Dyce at the end of the season, or would it be a contract to the end of the season? If you know what I mean, and what does that do for his reputation? You know what I mean. Is he? He's not. He, do, he probably doesn't want that. He's fire- the new Allardyce, <laughs> yeah. is what he is. He's, he might. You know, that's exactly it, yeah. isn't it? He's going to maybe look at it and be like, "Do I want that reputation as that sort of firefighter?" So why get the old, the new Allardyce when you could get the old Allardyce? As I
3: just started thinking that's what we all the Premier League needs. It doesn't mean on the flip side, Nottingham Forest first away win. I think it's the first time they've you know pick the same side Barry two games running all season so so perhaps he's starting to sort of steve cooper's starting to get uh you know a modicum of an idea of, of who his side is and also like you saw his celebrations at the end with the fans what what southampton and nathan jones don't have that relationship that steve cooper has earned from the forest fans and they are sort of all in it together which i think makes a bit of a difference
5: well it, it's obviously their first season back after a very long time out of the top flight they're enjoying the adventure they are on a slight upward trajectory. Um, this is a massive win, albeit against pretty pitiful opposition. But uh, you know, to win, is that the was that the first goal they've scored away from home? Second away second, goal. Second away goal. So yeah, it's it's a brilliant evening for them and a great result for Steve Cooper. But you know, you're comparing apples and oranges because Southampton have been in the Premier League for a long time uh they're very much on a downward trajectory i think in our pre-season pod i thought i was going to be unique in predicting a, a southampton relegation and lo and behold every single person agreed with me um so it's it's no great surprise to see them in this position but when you make those pre-season predictions you kind of you can only judge clubs in the situation they're in at the moment so they might start badly replace the manager and then hugely improve but southampton started badly have replaced their manager and if anything seem to have got worse so it's difficult to see how they get themselves out of this pickle and i i agree that it's it's i feel bad suggesting that nathan jones is a wrong appointment after just five games but um he may very well turn out to know exactly what he's doing, given time, and, and in ten another five games, it could be a di- completely different picture.
4: Just on just on Forest, I, I kind of feel that uh, you know the the, the, the it, it's a really interesting uh, case right now because if really you kind of think if if there hadn't have been those rumours of Cooper getting the sack, you know in October. Then they might have never been in the position to be kind of turning things around, because the fans rallied behind Cooper in a way that you know is quite unusual in in Premier League's circumstances that when things are going well, things are going badly rather. fans are usually kind of like, "Well, yeah, they could get worse." but these guys were like, "No, we, we want you know we respect what he's done, we like him, we want him to stay. We acknowledge that he's in a bind with having to deal you know integrate 127 new signings but that gave him the space uh when when they went and gave him the contract extension that was all of a sudden the kind of the the balance of power had shifted and he then got the breathing space to actually go well which of these players actually work for me and which of the you know how can i build a a, a unit that works out of these guys and i think you know the front three uh he obviously wanted gibbs white more than you know pretty much any other signing he's kept with brennan johnson I and mean, e he's looking like you know the the, the the leading man they can anchor that all around, and it's, it's starting to take shape, but he got that breathing time because the, because of a rare situation where the fans were like, "No, it would be wrong to sack him right now, which you don't get the feeling that somebody like Nathan Jones would get.
3: Hmm. Yeah, he, the same manager bounce is what they got at yeah, for Forrest, yeah. isn't it? Uh, it? It is Forrest's first away win since 1999, which would be a meaningful stat if they'd been in the Premier League since 1999. Um, Starbridge Tricky says, have you heard about the skateboard and Rubik's Cube king from Brazil, Gus Scarpa, got a great left foot as well, is going to be a cult hero at Forrest. He is arriving in January from Palmeiras, uh, has a skateboarding hobby and has been scouting places in Nottingham. Uh, he said an indoor park I already found one in Nottingham now an outdoor park on the street will be a little difficult because of the weather it rains practically every day but we at- we adapt we dig I'm a guy who looks too much for things I like to do that I want to do but there's still a Rubik's Cube drums a lot of things I can do to occupy myself there so if you see a man doing a Rubik's Cube in a skate park in Nottingham that is Gus Scarpa.
5: I don't know if Forrest have played at Crystal Palace yet this season but when they do if they if that is still in the calendar. I would like to cordially invite Mister Scarpa to come to the skateboard at the end, or skateboard park at the end of my street, which has just been re relaid and redesigned, and is, I believe, acknowledged as the best skate park in the United Kingdom, if not Europe. Oh, I wow. just wonder, um, is there a clause in his contract? Is he allowed to skateboard? Because it's quite dangerous.
3: Yeah. Yeah, we haven't talked about um, we haven't talked about Manuel Neuer breaking his leg skiing, have we, after the World Cup, which sort of seemed extraordinary that you'd go, you know, surely like Bayern are a bit like, I'm not sure you should have been doing a blue run, Manuel.
5: It's like the time Carlo Codocini didn't he break his leg or arms on his motorcycle, and it turned out he shouldn't have been on a motorcycle because his insurance didn't cover it. But um, anyway, yeah, the, the invitation stands if Scarpa wants to come and try out uh, Brixton Skate Park. Uh, in this game as well,
3: uh, Bupinda Singh Gill became the first Sikh Punjabi to serve as an assistant referee at a Premier League match. My dream has always been to reach the top of the game, be a role model for future officials, encourage more people from diverse backgrounds into officiating, especially from a South Asian background just like me, he said. Uh, the other assistant also had a lovely moment after the goal, the camera panned to the bench and he was right in the front of the picture and he evacuated both nostrils with gusto. So, good for him. Um, Villa won, Wolves won. Uh, Leon Bailey, Jonathan, had an amazing chance to win it in injury time. Round the keeper and missed. But he was absolutely devastated. I mean, devastated. It was like he... I mean... What happens if he misses a chance in a game like of real significance? Not like like like. What if he gets to a cup final? I, I worry for
5: him.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm worried for him as well. Uh, uh, it's 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 strange. Like what prompts a professional to react in that way in a sort of relatively minor sort of insignificant match? Really, Um put out on. Well, not insignificant, but you know, what I mean, it's not like a sort of cup final or you know. He put out on Instagram as well, didn't he? Like, I'll be up, I'll be up all night. I, I won't sleep for days and sort of, you know, <laughs> just like, I, I don't know if it's maybe he, he feels like he's not performing that well at, at, at the club and maybe that pressure has made him feel like he, he really wants to step up or just puts high standards on himself because I'm sure he's missed other chances and and been pretty blase about it. So, yes, it, it is a weird one. It, it almost felt as if it was for show at first, but then he did seem genuinely sort of devastated, didn't he? So, it's a, I don't think I've seen that before, really. <laughs> but it was like he was playing a role. It was like,
3: you know, it was like the, like a scene in Neighbours where, like, somebody walks to the lake and their partner is drowned and they're just un- sobbing uncontrollably. Look, it's good to show emotion, I guess. Um, you know, like we shouldn't, not that he cares. Emery afterwards, Paul said, like, you know, it's it's good because it shows... He cares, but like someone needs to say, look, it's only the, it'll be the difference between finishing twelfth <laughs> and finishing twelfth, probably.
2: But the thing is, the, th- the thing is, though, Max, like that, you know, fans always sort of accuse players of like, oh well, does he care about the club and he's not playing for the shirt? So it's, so, it's almost like you can't have it both. You can't have it both ways, you know. Yeah. Either either you accuse them of not caring, or you can't then accuse them of caring too much because that was like an extreme case of caring.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, Daniel Podence's goal was so n- lovely, wasn't it, Paul? Don't sort of forget that all Premier League players are brilliant. That's what I thought when I saw that goal. I was like, you know, I'm, I paid no attention to Daniel Podence, but look, look at his balance and grace and all those things.
4: Yeah, no, it's true. It was. A, it was. A, I, mean, I, I, I think. I think I've seen sort of. There seems to be a, a, a lot of good play in and around the box. People kind of creating space to base, uh, the score nowadays there's a lot more that kind of that kind of goal and that perhaps wasn't the best I've seen but it was it was it was it was uh taken on at a pace and he finished really well um well, walls in that first half were you know really impressive all around and you you kind of reminded that actually a lot of that people talk about um people talk about the kind of the signings that haven't worked for them I'm trying to think of that 35 million pound teenager who's Barely play for them up front. Uh, Fabio Silva. Yeah, Fabio Silva. You know, people. Do you, know, you think about Fabio Silva, and you think of their bad signings, but actually, a lot of their recruitment has been has been really good. And and that that midfield three of Martinho, Neves, and um, Nunes you know, really dominated their game against Villa, and uh, it kind of, I think, surprised surprised the home team. I think I don't think they they expected such. Such resistance and such you know, technical technical ability on the ball as well. They really drove the game, and there were lots of uh, lots of forward passing, breaking the lines quite quite readily. It was impressive to watch. You know, this this being a sort of West Midlands Spanish derby, though it was. You know, you knew it wasn't going to be over, and that Emery would have its say. And you know, he tweaked things, bringing on a new left back, um, uh, Augustinson who kind of offered a very different kind of option. Um, uh, on on that left, which kind of changed the dynamic for just in a tiny way, but for Villa and and obviously like in Ings obviously changed changed that shape and did change the questions that were asking of Wolves, and eventually they deserved they deserved their, their draw. I thought it was a an interesting game. Both managers showing that they you know they they they're going to bring something to the Premier League. I thought.
3: Yeah, a great goal line clearance from Max Kilman from Ludwig Augustinson who I confess I'd not heard of until he hit that volley, um and. Uh, Eight Norris run at the end had no right to get through about a million
5: people mm. and get a shot away. But probably a fair result, Barry. Yeah, I think so. Um it, pff, yeah. I mean I, I did enjoy at the start, uh, Emiliano Martinez was back in goal for Villa after returning from the World Cup and he came out before the game with his World Cup medal and his his golden glove and it was like, Oh, Christ, Come on, mate. What's oh do it do it do, now? it, do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think he managed to rein himself in. That Just one thing I wanted to pick up on, it's not really pertinent to last night's game, but I think it was on TalkSport yesterday, uh, there was an interview with Adama Traore in which uh, whoever was interviewing was asking him about his weightlifting regime and he insisted that he does not do weights. He doesn't pump iron. <laughs> and I'm just going... That is not, that can't be possible. How is he the physique he is without lifting weights? It it can't be true. He needs to speak to Brian Hill. Yeah.
3: Is it all body weight? What's Sadama doing? I mean, maybe he'll email. Maybe, maybe these personal trainers could email us and tell us. But you're, you're, I, I would imagine he spends some time in the gym. But maybe he's maybe he's just too humble.
5: But I'm, I'm, I mean, if any personal trainers out there can can get me a physique like Adama Traoré's without having to endure the tedium <laughs> of pumping iron. I would love to hear from them. (laughs) I don't think you'd be the same Barry
3: if you looked like that, to be honest. Oiling yourself up before a pod. Chelsea Man City tonight. Before we end part two, we're going to talk about the Greg Bahalta story um, from the US, which is quite extraordinary. Um, Lots of our US listeners getting in touch with this. It all stems from Gio Reyna not being picked much at the World Cup. You might remember that USMNT manager Greg Berhalter had told him he wouldn't get a lot of game time. He reacted badly. um, And so he got less game time and this came out publicly. Um, As a result, turns out that Gio's parents, Claudio Reyna and uh, Danielle, uh, his mum, well, Danielle told US soccer sporting director Ernie Stewart about Berhalter physically assaulting his wife Rosalind when they were going out in 1991 when they were teenagers. Quote, I told Ernie that I thought it was especially unfair that Gio, had, who had apologised for acting immaturely about his playing time, was still being dragged through the mud when Greg had asked for and received forgiveness for doing something so much worse at the same age. Bahalter is now under investigation by US Soccer after admitting the allegation. In a statement on Tuesday, Bahalter said he had been contacted during the World Cup by someone saying they were going to, quote, take him down. Uh, there, are no, there are zero excuses for my action that night, He said, We'd been dating for four months when an incident happened between us that would shape our future relationship. One night, while out drinking at a local bar, Rosalind and I had a heated argument that continued outside. It became physical, and I kicked her in the legs. Uh, That statement was co signed by his wife. I think it's impossible to separate the offence, which is disgraceful, and the rest of the story. Like, domestic violence is a real problem. Uh, in society, in football, we've talked about it before, and it doesn't matter if it was last week or if it was thirty years ago. And there is clearly no time limit on when you can report these things. Um, but but correct me if I'm wrong, Barry. Is this scenario a bit like you knowing your mum knowing something about me, and you and her going to the bosses at the Guardian? because I'm somehow sidelining you by only asking you dumb open goal questions or <laughs> Like, I don't want, like, 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 taking aside the seriousness of the, of, of the incident, which I don't want to do, but like, is that the same, that that feels what it is like
5: to me. I don't know, what, what is Gio Reyna thinking in this situation? I, I don't know. It's a, It's a very weird story and it seems to show how insular the world of American soccer is because all the men involved, like, uh, Giva, uh or Claudia Arena Ernie Stewart Greg Berhalter they're all in the USA 94 World Cup squad I keep expecting Tab Ramos or Tony Miola to pop up and chip in with some sort of contribution we were discussing this before the pod and Paul made the point that you know what Greg Berhalter did to his wife is inexcusable Um. Daniela Reyna has suggested that there was more to it than they've admitted in their statement. I don't know if that's true or not, obviously, but her, her and Berhalter's wife were friends. They were in college together. They were roommates for four years. They played football together. And yeah, anyway, so Paul said, look, what he did was inexcusable, but he apologized. The woman who is now his wife, Accepted his apology. They got married. They've had children. They've been married for twenty five years. He, so I yeah, I really don't understand what Claudio and Daniela Reyna, who apparently are well presumably not anymore, but were very good friends with Berhalter and his wife, are trying to achieve by this. You know, obviously mums stick up for their their sons. They don't like to see them uh, get dragged, but. If it was my mum, I'd, I'd certainly be asking her to pipe down and, you know, please don't don't make an already unpleasant situation way worse. Now, the thing to remember is Berhalter is out of contract. His contract expired on the 31st of December, and I think until this happened, it was a question of when he would sign a new contract and he would lead the USA into the next World Cup, which, of course, is a home World Cup for them. but will he be punished for this uh, assault he perpetrated whatever 30 years ago or 26 years ago i don't know should he be punished i don't know either what what he did is obviously not cool on Tuesday, U.S.
3: Soccer released a statement saying, upon learning of the allegation against U.S. Men's National Team Head Coach Greg Berhalter on December the 11th, U.S. Soccer immediately hired Alston and Bird LLP to conduct an independent investigation into the matter. We appreciate Greg and Rosalind coming forward to speak openly about this incident, consistent with our commitment to transparency. We'll share the results of the investigation publicly when it is complete. U.S. Soccer condemns violence of any kind and takes such allegations very seriously. And that'll do for part two. Part three, uh, we will be joined by Alistair Jones from Action for Albion to discuss what's happening at West Brom.
1: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.
3: Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Let's bring in Alastair Jones from Action for Albion. We were just discussing in the break there. Lots of people keep getting in touch. And can you please discuss what's happening at West Bromwich Albion? And Barry and I, um, I don't want to speak for Paul or or Jonathan, but Barry and I have absolutely no idea what's happening at West Bromwich Albion. So hopefully you can shed some light on it because you're doing well on the pitch, but situations off the pitch are not Right, is that
0: correct? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, we weren't doing well on the pitch either. I mean, it was a, it was a disastrous start to the season under Steve Bruce. Um, and We'd taken on Carlos Corbran uh, eight weeks ago. So I don't know whether it's Carlos Corbran or Action for Albion's in, in initiation that has caused this upturn in form. But since Action for Albion's come on, we've won eight out of nine and we just uh, have no idea where it's come from. <laughs> we were bottom of the league. And now we're, we're a point off the playoffs and we're really challenging. But as I say, it could be a special season on the pitch. And it's such a shame that the club is fractured as it is. And it looks like we've got huge off the field ramifications uh, along with the on the field improvements that we've made.
3: So give us an idea of like who, who owns West Brom and what. And they, and they own money, is that right?
0: yeah okay so uh, in 2016 Jeremy Peace who was our previous owner sold to a consortium and a majority shareholder 88% and I'll come on to that in a minute because that's quite an important part 88% of the business to uh, Guachan Lai who is a Chinese uh, gentleman uh, and business owner based in obviously Guangzhou I think he is based in uh, and the idea was that we're going to complete a self sustained business model and the business would be a self sustained business model so in in fairness to the incumbent owners, they never said that they were going to spend millions and millions of pounds. They said they were going to be a self-sustaining business model. And that went quite well um, for the first few years. As you probably remember, we were in the Premier League and we had eight successes, pre- successful Premier League years. And then we had one disastrous year where I'm sure you remember Taxi Gate in Barcelona where the lads had a nicked a taxi and it was all a disastrous start. We, Tony Pulis started with us in that season and then Alan Pardew took over, which was... Uh, Unmitigated disaster, as as tends to happen with Alan Pardew nowadays. And then uh, after that, um, yeah, they, they went to Barcelona on a on a, a, a warm weather training trip and ended up stealing the taxi and and running off with the taxi. Do you remember yes,
3: that? Yes, that's right. I remember now. Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, essentially, that season we got relegated. Now at that time, we were in the top ten spenders in Europe uh, at West Brom, and we were the eleventh highest wage bill, and obviously. That doesn't necessitate to a self-sustaining business model. So we, when the when the when they cut the the sort of the cables off to be able to spend some money, unfortunately went badly wrong. And so since then we've had some major issues. And then the what really brought it to light was last year's accounts. It came to fruit that that had a five million pound loan from uh to a company called Wisdom Smart that they'd taken out of the football club. To lend to another one of Guatan lois companies that were struggling during the pandemic, and then we had an e in the account. It said, "Well, don't worry about that. It was March 2021. We're not going to pay that back. We haven't paid it back yet, but we promise you by December the 31st, we'll pay back." Now, on top of that, there is also another. Another loan, which was inherited by Guachan Life from the previous owners, um, that took 18 months for a forensic accountants to find. And that totals around about 4.7 million. So we're up to 9.7 million that has been taken out of the club that's not been put back. And then, just to put a cherry on a really poor cake, uh, there was then another £2 million share dividend that was basically written out to say we're going to sell shares for £2 million. And those £2 million went to Guacha and Lai, and so that's another £2 million. So in total, that we know about, and that's important that a stress that we know about, £12 million has been taken out from the business. And that isn't hearsay or tittle-tattle, that's actually fundamentally in the accounts that's proven that that is what is owed to the football club that has not been paid back.
3: Abion what Farabian, well, presumably they're asking the chairman of West Cambridge Albion, to what, stop taking money out of the club and putting it into other things and give it back? Seems, seems quite a sensible thing to ask
0: for. That'd be quite nice. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, look, the one thing that we, we've tried to do as Action for Albion, we, we, we're not an angry mob, we're reasonable people um, and we want we want answers. We've actually sent an, an open email to Ron Gawley, who's the CEO of our, of our football club. And and, we, and I feel a little bit of sympathy for Ron Gawley, actually, to be honest. I mean, he, he didn't know any of this when he took over the club. Uh, the communications has been abysmal, but that's by the by. He actually, I think he's been let down himself um, by being told that this money was going to be paid back. So Action for Albion set up about being legal, above board and reasonably in everything that we do. So every protest that we've made, which I'm sure you'll ask me about what protests we're doing at the minute, we will always be peaceful and we want to have a dialogue with a football club that we all love.
5: Alistair, I um... Twelve million quid is obviously a lot of money, but in football terms, it's not a huge amount, particularly for a club that's been in the Premier League for a long time. Is there a concern that the club might be in far more financial peril than this, and I use the term advisedly, relatively paltry amount suggests?
0: Yeah, thanks for that question, Barry, because it's really, really important that I put across. So, yes, there is a a consideration that we're in trouble and it's been proven this week because on top of what they owe, they've actually taken out from MSD, which seems to be the football equivalent of Wonga. When anybody needs like a, a loan in football, it seems to be MSD, Southampton done it and then, more scarily, Derby have done it. We've had to borrow £20 million this week at twelve, at around about 10.7% interest to continue day-to-day running of the football club. So when you ask that question, the question remains, and, and, and the questions that we want asking is, how can a club with 20 years of consecutive Premier League money, because that's West Brom, since 2002 we have had 20 years of consecutive money in the Premier League, How in the world, whether whether that be by parachute payments or or, um, participation, how in the world have we got to a point where the one year that we might not get promoted that we've got to borrow £20 million to continue in the day-to-day run of the football club?
3: What's the communication like between you and the club? Like, are they being... Are they, <laughs> you start laughing already, so I'll, I'll, I, won't, <laughs> I won't ask a follow-up.
0: We've we put an open email, a very polite, and I'll, I'll happily forward it on to you guys so you can see. We've put a very polite email to Ron Gourlay uh, asking just for a sit-down and a cup of tea, just to sit down and, and, and talk to us. At the end of the day, they're custodians of the football club, but the football club it belongs to the fans. And to have absolutely no communication whatsoever. In fact, a small win, I think, for Action for Albion was that they put a four-line statement out saying that their money wasn't going to be paid back on New Year's Eve. Happy New Year, guys. You're not getting the money back, by the way. But at least we think our work has put that on. We're absolutely confident that that would never have even gone out onto the website if we hadn't done what we've done over the last eight weeks.
3: Yeah, and actually, and the wider issue is, isn't it, it's... And we've talked about this with reference to other clubs and other owners and clubs that have gone out of business and others that have just survived. Is it, you know, until it's your club, you just sort of think, uh, you know, we're all in this football family, in inverted commas, but actually you just go, oh, thank God that's not us. But it could be any club. And and actually, it's interesting. I I saw a thread from Gordon Brown about an independent regulator, right, which it just stories like this scream that we need that in football.
0: I couldn't agree more. I've been on, I've been on your channel actually, Talk Sport um, last week with Addy and Scott Minto, and I said exactly the same. The governance in football is absolutely vital. If you go, if you go through up and down the football spe- the pyramid now, there's many of these. We're not the only ones. There's, there's a huge amount, and there's something fundamentally wrong in the way that football set up in this country, and that has to change. The fit and proper persons, whatever you want it to be, the governance in football is wrong because there's too many stories like we've had over the last two or three years. It can't just be unlucky. It's got to be something that's wrong in the setup of the whole of football.
3: Alistair, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um stay stay positive. Um, you know, and, and at least it's going well on the pitch you know you never know
0: Can I just mention very quickly just what we've done just regards to protests and things like that because it's important that we show we're trying to be a little bit different we've you've probably seen it's a bit like a Coldplay concert when we score goals and it's actually happened that we've we've scored goals around the, the we've done the 12th minute of the second half we've done a shine a light protest so we, we find that and we've done a lot of work with this that the, the more easy the protest is for people to participate in the more people do so everyone's got a mobile phone so when we on the 12th minute of, of the game of the second half when it's dark it's, it makes it look better. We ask our guys to shine a light. So when you see on the telly, there's loads of shot lights shining at the Albion. That's based on shining a light on on the situation at Albion and maybe football as a whole. And there'll be other protests, but they'll always be peaceful. Um, and that's just thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to put, come on and showcase what we've got wrong with the football club. I really appreciate it. Uh,
3: good man, so Thanks so much for your time, mate. We'll uh, we'll keep in touch.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Uh, Alistair
3: Jones there from Action for Albion. A club state- statement said that Lie had assured the club's board that the money would be repaid, quote, early in the new year. Chief Executive Ron Gawley has assured fans on the 23rd of December, the loan would be repaid in time to be used by the baggies in the transfer window in January. Um, elsewhere in the EFL, Carl says, at what point does Darren Ferguson get allocated a permanent parking space in the Peter- Peterborough United car park? Uh, it's his fourth stint as Peterborough manager, uh, replacing Grant McCann. And that was his third go-in charge. So they're just they're just <laughs> alternating Grant McCann and Darren Ferguson. But, you know, they're, they're not far off the playoffs in League One. Uh, I hope they don't go up. Um, and on the subject of cars, uh, Barry, have you seen Dan Burns' car? I, I mean, it can't be real. And if it is, it's absolutely sensational. I don't know what make of car it is. Well,
5: it's, it's some sort of smart car, isn't it? Um... So how does he fit in that? It's timing. Well... We were discussing, me and a couple of mates were discussing this the other night, and uh, my friend Jonathan, I I don't think you've met him, you've met his dog Norman, but he's six foot four, Mm -hmm. and he said when he first passed his driving test, he drove a smart car, and he was able to fit in it quite comfortably. They're quite roomy, because there's no back seat, you know. Right,
3: okay. Well, good for him for not driving a Porsche. It's like Jürgen Klinsmann and his Beetle. Dan Byrne keeps his feet his big feet firmly on the ground um uh, thank you to uh uh magic mikey uh who sent me that picture of dan burns tiny car uh and that'll do for today's pod uh, with the fa cup third round this weekend so we'll talk about that on monday but for the time being the phone goes and it's time to leave that is what that sign is thank you jonathan thank you very much that was my phone good well get it you're free to go thank you paul <laughs> thank you and thank you barry thanks max Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanders.
0: This is The Guardian.